0: I'm Abby Kinney, and you are listening to UpZoned. On. Hello, everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of UpZoned, a show where we take one big story from the news each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation, and we UpZone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Kenney, an urban planner from Kansas City, and joining me today is John Reuter, former Sandpoint Councilman, Inlander, Columnist, and Bipartisan Strategist. John, welcome back. I'm going to have to start introducing you as the regular co-host pretty soon here. Uh, I think this is like the third or fourth time you've been on Upzone this year, so you're getting some credentials. You'll have to add that.
1: It's exciting to be back again so soon. Uh 2 weeks in a row here. So yeah, this is uh that's that's new for me and it's uh and it's fun to be back with you after chatting with Chuck last week.
0: Yeah, I haven't listened to that episode yet. That that reminds me I need to go listen to it. Hopefully you guys did a good job. I'm sure you did.
1: I mean, you know, I I thought I did well. I say jokingly. <laughs> Chuck was great as always and I and I did some good quoting of things from Chuck's old stuff and yeah, I think it's a um I think it's a nice deep dive into or or deep-ish dive into uh, what's happening with federal policy with some implications at the end for locals, but it's going to be fun this week, I think, to talk more about local policies and what small towns and cities can do. So it's kind of a, uh, a nice change of a topic for us.
0: Well, that is a great segue. So we'll just jump right into it. So the article that we are going to be covering today was published in The Urbanist by Stephen Fessler. It is entitled Walla Walla, a Washington City without single family only zoning. So if you are like me, you've never heard of Walla Walla, (laughs) so I'm going to provide a little bit of context. Uh, Walla Walla is a town of about 32,000 residents located in the southeastern region of Washington State in the Walla Walla Valley. It's fairly secluded with the closest big cities of Portland and Seattle being four hours or more away. So as you might imagine, the city kind of flies under the radar, which is probably why many listeners weren't alerted when the city quietly adopted zoning changes all the way back in 2018 that eliminated single-family-only zones. These zoning changes were prompted by the recognition that Walla Walla is actually growing and it is unable to grow out, so it must reinvest in itself, so to speak. After a two-year process, the city of Walla Walla consolidated their neighborhood zoning districts. They had many. They consolidated it into one zoning district and reformed the regulations to allow a broad spectrum of neighborhood-friendly uses. So this universal neighborhood zoning district is – it basically just regulates things like height and building types, such as cottage courts, duplexes, fourplexes, townhomes, accessory dwelling units – The site and development standards have been really radically simplified, so they eliminated minimum lot size standards, i.e. density standards, and provided a greater flexibility of options around off-street parking. So this is very cool to see. And now that we have a place that actually ended single-family zoning, we can point to it and say that the world didn't burn down, which I'm kind of excited about. Well, I guess that region is burning, but it's not because of the zoning changes in Walla Walla, I promise. So for the sake of providing a little bit of nuance on this topic, I do want to start off by talking a bit about why planners and people interested in cities have been on this topic of eliminating single-family-only zoning districts. This topic has over the past year really become kind of a hot button issue in our national political theater, which is unfortunate because any topic that enters into the national political theater uh, very quickly becomes misinterpreted and twisted into oblivion. So I, I want to start with that. John, maybe you can pitch us the Strongtown's case for why single-family zoning is ultimately not very helpful for the evolution of communities and what the alternative might look like.
1: Yeah, and so the real problem with single-family zoning is it really tries to take a neighborhood and just freeze it in place, right? And what we really believe in at Strong Towns is this idea of incremental growth—the idea that you let places grow slowly and surely over time, right? And you actually let, like, that development come in, and that you'll end up. And, and, and let's talk about why. What that lets us do is it let's just respond to what communities need right, when you have just one type of housing in an area, you're really only fulfilling one kind of use case here. What that doesn't do is it doesn't let you create, like, let's say, uh, you know, a lot of this is like accessory dwelling units, which also can be referred to as like a mother-in-law flat or like an apartment for someone to move into. And this is really the way that our cities grew for hundreds and thousands of years. But certainly when we think about a a traditional, even uh, uh, American style of building, or a Western style of building, is that you'd be able to, like, add an extra room and add an extra unit that you'd be able to like rent out to be able to afford the mortgage on a place or be able to afford to like keep upkeep. Um, You'd be able to like add on some space so that your family could actually stay there and and move in with you when they got older but also have some independence. And you'd be able to also like subdivide a house in half so that actually two families could afford housing that otherwise couldn't make it work. Now almost always communities will have single family zoning but they'll also have other types of zoning. And so the other thing they'll do is they'll push all the burden of growth on one particular part of town. And so you'll have apartment buildings and you'll have single family homes. And that really eliminates the idea of like having a rich mix of a neighborhood with a lot of like economic diversity, a lot of different types of people at different stages in their lives, right, in it. So there's like major problem with solving the idea. And so instead of pushing all the growth to one part of town, the idea of Strong Towns is, let's have that growth happen all across the community in an even way where no one bears the entire responsibility for growth, but no one has no change either, right? Everybody experiences gradual change in a community as it grows and thrives. So those are some initial ideas about why we think single-family zoning isn't great and why the alternative of coming up with, like, uh, some basic uses where just the next increment can go up can happen. And I just let me just emphasize this one more point here, which is it's not about taking single-family zones and allowing apartment building into them, right? This isn't what happened in Walla Walla. <laughs> it's taking single-family zones right. and saying, you can add an extra unit. You can do a little bit more here. We're going to come up with patterns of growth that allow for a little bit more flexibility here in use pattern. We're let people build on smaller lots. It's those kind of things that are taking place here. It's not a, um, it's not a wholesale change, which I think so often, happens with, so often happens with rezoning, where the zoning is just dramatic because instead of relieving this pressure for new development over time by letting like incremental growth happen, we wait until it all happens in these giant big buildings all at once. And that feels really disruptive and makes it really scary when the reality is it doesn't have to be, like we're seeing in Walla Walla.
0: I think that hits the nail on the head. I mean, it's it's really about decentralizing who benefits from growth and wh- how growth occurs. Because when you stifle growth, it's going to happen all in one place where the big apartments are allowed and the people who benefit are, are going to be the the people doing these big projects, the people who are able to actually rent out these units and, and build these units rather than, you know, maybe a homeowner who has an additional unit on their property and can rent it out for some additional income. Uh, when when you actually allow neighborhoods to adapt To these market pressures, it actually provides benefits to the residents that are currently living there. And I think that that's something that people don't often talk about when having this discussion and and the discussion gets so misconstrued. So, So I think that it's important to understand what the alternative looks like. I also think it's important to really consider like why people feel so attached to the idea of neighborhoods Being frozen in time and having only one housing type. Because, you know, that's the environment that I grew up in. And it's probably an environment that many listeners grew up in. I think that for many of us who are a few steps removed from this conversation, ending single family zoning seems like a threat because we feel that subdivisions filled with one type of building um, are normal because we lack this long term perspective that communities. Have been built uh, in to really have a diverse array of housing types throughout history, and we assume that the status quo of building subdivisions is normal and a natural outcome. When in reality, it's it's driven by market distortions. So. You know, I think another thing is that single family subdivisions represent to many people the sense of stability and ownership because in their first life cycle, subdivisions of single family homes really catered to like one type of customer, right? And over time, that changes. And so I think it's important to understand that the people in neighborhoods are going to change over time. and and allowing neighborhoods to adapt with that is incredibly important. You know, and and I think, you know, the alternative to building neighborhoods in this way is not to, like, start building the tenement housing of the 19th century. We've largely forgotten that neighborhoods can be built in many ways, and you can still have a a strong, family-friendly, stable neighborhood that also provides uh, housing for a variety of residents. Your neighborhood can have a single-family house for a first-time home buyer or families or single people, or you can have duplexes that create a revenue stream for people who are the primary owner. You can have accessory dwelling units for a college student or an aging person who can live independently. Uh, You can have a walk-up apartment building, a small-scale walk-up apartment building uh, that are going to help neighbors that aren't in a position to own or don't want to own or aren't ready to own. So the benefits of flexibility that really traditional neighborhood development provides uh, cannot be overlooked. And unfortunately, many of us are just not very familiar with neighborhoods like that or conscious of what makes neighborhoods that we find interesting, the neighborhoods that that people go to visit on vacation, um, what makes those neighborhoods interesting and, and are less open-minded when it comes to their own communities.
1: I think all of that is exactly right. And I think there's something else that you said I want to go back to and like underline a bunch and like circle. And I don't know, this is how I tend to take notes. I have a lot of, you see my notes are basically unlegible from all my underlining and circling. But that's not the point. The point is this, which is this idea around trying to build things to a finished state right, is so much at the center of the suburban experiment, right? We have this with like the old, the classic, like Taco John's article, which people haven't read, they should go back and read on Strong Towns, which is the difference between Taco John's and this old and blighted block. And the whole analysis shows that the old and blighted block, in this traditional pattern is actually worth more than Taco John's. And one of the big problems with like this new, like fangled restaurant that's been built in this suburban style experiment way is that it's built to its finished state. It's never going to be worth, any more than it was on day one. It's never gonna be able to be reused for anything else than what it was built to be. It just is what it is and we build it on day one and then just over time, it just slowly falls apart and depreciates over time. And it's the same thing i do when you talk about the subdivision, where we have these big subdivisions and we build every single house in the subdivision basically all at once, all at the same time. And then we're like, we're done, we did it. The subdivision's complete and never should it change and never should anything happen. But what that really means is just when you have it locked in in that way, it means that subdivision is just going to slowly deteriorate over time. And we see this a lot of suburbs now around cities is how the suburbs are just slowly deteriorating now over time and losing value as time goes on. And actually we're seeing people flee who flee to the suburbs, fleeing back to the cities where value is actually being retained more, right? And that's part of what's happening there. But why is that value created? It's because they're allowed to adapt and change. Right? They're allowed to be reused in ways that make more sense, that housing can actually change in ways to meet the needs of people today, to meet the needs of where the neighborhood is headed. Instead of having to just sit there and say it's single family, it's all houses that were built at the same era, and now they fall apart. And that's the other thing. That, like Having um, change in single family zones to allow for gradual increases of density means that improvements gradually happen in the neighborhood. This town gets converted, but when it gets converted, it also gets fixed up right? Over here, I'm going to make an investment over here. And slowly you start to have different housing types at different levels of, of where they're at in terms of when they were built and when those repairs came in. And so now the neighborhood's not all edging at once. And by having neighborhoods where not everything declines at the same time really helps you avoid like decay, right? This is how we stop having these areas where we need like this big renewal effort to come in, by actually having them decline in this uneven way actually allows for the value of the, re- of the neighborhood as a whole to hold together. Right. So a huge part of the downside of like, uh, of like this idea, this urban experiment idea of just we're going to build everything at once and be done. No, no, no. Cities are meant to be an ongoing ex- experience, an ongoing part of life, an ongoing sense of activity, not a museum piece.
0: Yeah. No, that that's totally and exactly right. And what I keep thinking when you're saying that is like, humans are not built to a finished state. Society is not built to a finished state. Like, we, our culture, our society is constantly changing we we take the traditions of the past and we you know repeat change adapt like that's that's how that is like a rule of nature so to kind of take our our settlement our environment our built environment and freeze it in time is contrary with the laws of nature it really is when you think about it in that way
1: but it's such a human like it's such a human like instinct to want to be done <laughs> right, like we have self improvement and this idea that I'll get to some perfect version of myself. I'll get to some like ideal weight, and then I'll be satisfied. I'll get to some like ideal place, and everything will be fine. I'll have some ideal home, and everything will just be fine. And and I think yeah, there really is this idea, right, that that great cities and great lives are built by a love of the journey and an understanding of a continued evolution and the idea that that there isn't that it isn't about a hard endpoint as much as it's about a continued experience. Um, that is, there's some there's something uh. uh really uh really true about that, I guess. I think that's true.
0: Well, I, I do want to talk a little bit about, you know, how small cities are taking on this issue of zoning reform because I I think it's so interesting that this little city that a lot of people haven't heard of, no offense to anybody in Walla Walla, that they are able to just go through this process and change their zoning and do something that other cities have a really hard time doing. You know, I I work with cities on zoning. Uh, That's one of the things that we do. And in my own practice, I've observed that many smaller municipalities are really more capable of improving their zoning standards and oftentimes are more open-minded to doing things creatively. And what I attribute that to is the scale of government with regard to both geographic area and population and I don't know like I, I don't have the science behind that I I I'd be interested if somebody does have some kind of way of thinking about that because I think that there must be this like right size of city that enables them to be very nimble because you know these these smaller cities are able to be more flexible when it comes to reforming zoning when it comes to having uh, planning processes, and really just managing themselves than mid and large scale cities really are able to because large scale cities are bogged down by their intensified political atmosphere and really Oftentimes, complicated bureaucratic structures. There's just so many cooks in the kitchen. It makes reform uh, especially challenging. And if you don't have, you know, savvy leadership that is really taking ownership over the process, I- I'm not saying that it can't be done, but it does require a ton of technical and political diligence. So it, the irony is that mid to large scale cities would really likely benefit from these kinds of changes, but it's very difficult for them to do, especially with regard to to housing issues. And instead, you have these underdog cities that are quietly leading the way towards uh, reform and trying to take new approaches to zoning in a way that is much more nimble. I imagine, well, I guess I actually know that Walla Walla is just one of many places that are quietly doing these really interesting zoning reform measures. And, you know, they're doing it because in reality, when you start having these conversations, it is the pragmatic thing to do. But a lot of these larger cities just have a hard time getting past, I guess, getting out of their own way and actually doing something about it.
1: I think that's really an interesting question. First of all, let me say, I am familiar with Walla Walla. And I also want to note that Rachel (laughs) from our team actually went to school in Walla Walla. So those of us, there are people in strong towns who know Walla Walla. And if there's Walla Walla listeners out there, I just want them to know we see you, we know you're here and we appreciate what you're doing to build a strong town. That out of the way though, um, (laughs) I think it's interesting. Like, I, I think there are two reasons why sometimes cities can really succeed in the way that we're talking about here. One is, yeah, sometimes you've got like somebody who really like sees the need for change and like and they like drive it and the community comes together and they have like a chance to not have the conversation get blown up and they can actually just like have a community dialogue and come to logical conclusions. And I saw that happen at times. Other times it's just that they hire the right planner or they have a good expert who comes in. They have somebody like you who comes in and helps them with their comp plan, and then they end up somewhere new because someone comes in and there just aren't as many, you know, they're just there just isn't much uh, uh, context there, but it's really just them following and i will say that's really challenging because when we take ideas that were developed in big cities where often these ideas start and apply them to small towns sometimes the ideas are really smart and really make a lot of sense like like for example um eliminating single-family zoning there's almost nowhere in the country i can't even think of an example where single-family zoning is actually a good idea um, i I'd say the same thing with like parking requirements there's nowhere that i can point to where having a minimum number of parking requirements actually makes sense as a law. So those are two easy ones. But there are other kind of thinking around density um, that I've seen where, uh, where outside consultants come in and they apply for the same kind of like cookie cutter molds of what they did in the city somewhere and they try to bring that to a small town or a small town like some planner or some like citizen will be like, oh my goodness, I saw this thing in main blank city, right? We should do that here. And you're like, well, in your actual context, it doesn't make sense. And so that's, I think, what's really important here is As the strong town's consensus grows, as we get more and more planners like you doing the right things, it's important that we also have planners like you who look at the context of the city they're working with and think really specifically about it. And so I think sometimes great things happen in places like Walla Walla because smart people come in and they look at the context and they bring in big ideas or the people there locate these big ideas and like put them in place. And I think there's less political resistance because it's just smaller and you can talk to neighbors and talk them through together and figure it out. But other times it happens because there isn't the infrastructure to say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's look at what the impact is particularly here. Let's talk about the context specific that we're in, in here. And let me, let me give an example around density of where I've seen that happen too. It's very like closely related to this because I think this gets to the nuance here. So single family zoning, almost never a point we should allow gentle increases in growth. The Other one I've seen in small cities, as small as cities of five and 6,000 people, is the suggestion of creating more hubs for commercial activity. So they'll have a traditional downtown it has tons of empty lots in it, right? And they'll be like, well, yeah, but we should have more like community like coffee shops spouting out. And we should have like a corner show sprout up here. And we should have like a blank over here. And so they start adding these commercial zones to sort of dropping them in throughout their town at all these nodes, right? And be like, oh, we're gonna put one here. We're gonna put one there. We're gonna put one over here. And because so many of these towns have like highways running through them, right? There's the like, traffic there. But what ends up happening is it, it actually decentralizes the activity. And so what happens is it actually slows the rebirth of their downtown by locating that activity in these other pockets of places there. And what you end up seeing is actually, unless you have really strict form-based zoning in place there, which I think can be helpful and not as complicated in these places, you end up actually like just having the suburban experiments happening all over your town that aren't actually getting you where you wanna go. And so we're in a big city where there's so much demand for it, like here I am in Seattle, like we should eliminate single family zoning in, in Seattle. Um, and what is good is we have these neighborhood nodes everywhere. They make a lot of sense here because there's enough demand. Our downtown is already built out. There aren't a lot of places to build. The places that there are to build, people are going to build there. The land's valuable enough. But in many of our small towns, that same use case isn't true. And so it's really important, I guess I would say, as people think about how to bring reforms to their town, that they look at the specific case, they look at the lay of the land, and they understand where they're at. And how are you building a strong town that has that Strong traditional urban core, but also where everything is actually able to convert upward, where gradual change is possible. And I think that's the biggest trick with these things. Um, and why I think small towns, especially uh, smaller cities, whether it's 33,000 like Walla Walla or uh, six to 8,000 like a Sandpoint or, you know, all these various like smaller towns can have where it can work is that I think gradual growth, especially people can get their hands around and it can become not scary because we can all talk about it together. And so often what people try doing to do when they do growth is they just try to jump to like an apartment building. And that feels really scary because that really is a change in how your neighborhood's going to feel. It's going to be adjust to the street differently. It's going to relate to everything differently. It's going to be at a different scale. Whereas adding an accessory dwelling unit or splitting your house into a duplex um, or a triplex, but preserving the outside of it, right, that's not as dramatic. So anyway, just some thoughts there about the uh, – the mixed blessings that can come with the ease of being able to adopt revolutionary ideas, some of which are great and some of which can be challenging into these smaller town contexts.
0: Yeah, well, and to your point about doing things in a nuanced way and having these conversations at the local level, I did want to get your thoughts about, you know, the the idea of state preemption and abolishing single family zoning in that way, because we see that in the headlines. You know, we see, oh, X state, Abolish single family zoning. Um, and when I see that, you know, I do have some concerns about state level preemption because I think that that philosophy of governance can easily backfire because the political nature of the state level actions um, can really, I think, make people go on defense and misunderstand the discussion. And that you know, the pendulum can really swing in the other direction when you start to do state-level preemptions. And I think there's also a question of whether or not state-level legislation can actually implemented uh, correctly in a technical way uh, due to the vast variety of different local zoning codes and procedural structures. It's just, it's very complicated, right? And and so I have a little bit of concern about when we do this at the state level and communities don't have the opportunity to have these conversations and really apply changes um, in their zoning at the local level. What are your thoughts on that? I'm, I'm curious what you think.
1: Oh, I have such mixed feelings about this. It's so <laughs>
0: hard too. to figure out. Because yeah. I look
1: at, like, um, I think my, my general bias is we should let local places make local decisions and better decisions will be made that way. And I think that's generally true. That said, when I look at some of the fights that I see, especially actually in, now, I'm sure this happens all over the place, but the ones I'm reading about and thinking about are especially happening in California. Um, where you've seen people talk about preempting it, and just the amounts of fights that have happened in places, in communities like San Francisco, where the need for more housing to increase affordability, just to actually have the housing to have everyone be able to live there, that needs to be able to be in that space that they're trying to do there, um, which everyone agrees on, right, about that part of it, but the amount of blockades that they run into in terms of actually being able to have things happen there, it is a situation where I go, something is out, something is out of whack here. Something needs to come in and someone needs to be like, we need to have some sort of like ability. I think part of how you release that tension is by actually letting that growth happen a lot more places rather than having to say it's, it's going to happen just in your, your community or having to pick who are the, who are going to be the three communities that get this, you know, who are the three neighborhoods in our city that are going to get this and the 10 neighborhoods won't. I think it needs to be more like, here's how all 10 neighborhoods or here's how all 13 neighborhoods in the community, I made up that number, right? But everyone's going to experience growth. And so a preemption can potentially create that by, by having it by having it go through in that way. But I don't know. I think it's an incredibly complicated and hard question for, I'm not even necessarily worried about the backlash. I'm also just not concerned that policy, I'm not, I'm concerned that policies around how you grow your towns often just aren't as effective when they aren't created to the local context. And while it would be a good idea to eliminate single family zoning and to essentially have a ban on single family zoning and just say, no, you can't, you can't have zoning that doesn't allow for some side of like Every zone should have the ability for some kind of like gradual increase in it, right That should just that should just be a true like factual statement there. Some flexibility. right, but that flexibility should exist. I worry about mandating that at a state level and all these best practices that might make sense in in a bigger city that may be put into a small town and not make sense. and it, it, I just think that's a really tricky dynamic there because in this case they're right, but in lots of other cases, I've seen state legislators be really wrong.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's something that I would love to see a a really good debate on. I would like to watch some really smart people debate that issue because I think it's I think it's a really interesting one. I don't know where I land on it. My first instinct is that and maybe it's because I'm, you know, young and naive, whatever, <laughs> but but my first instinct is that that there is a role for local planning in this and a role for People at the local level having these conversations around reform, and you know having these things happen at these high levels, these state levels, can really create more backlash than than was intended. So that that's probably the con- biggest concern that I have. So
1: yeah, it's really tough. I think these are the tough issues of figuring out where it goes. But I generally think that I generally think that as a nation. We have not trusted local governments enough, and not put enough into their hands. And that said, there are plenty of things that I personally actually don't think should go down to a local level. Um, particularly some some big issues around. Um, I think I think when it comes to civil rights, you can't put them to a local level. There needs to be like common things that you know. There needs to be common understandings of of what protections you're going to have as an individual as you travel across the country. Um, Issues of environmental pollution that don't end on the borders of the cities. It makes sense that, hey, if there's going to go multiple cities, you have to figure something out. Interstate planning can't really be done at the local level. You actually have to do those across things. And yet, at the same time, when I think about some of these issues, and I think about even interstate planning, right, or even some of these issues that cross boundaries, I think, boy, there are ways that we could more locally situate these decisions and work with local people to have better results. There are ways we could think about how we improve aquifers at the local level. There are ways we could think about how we build roads and how roads go through areas that work better with more local consultation and more advice and, and, and regard there. So I think the balancing act is probably having state governments um, create systems that create nudges, but still leave a lot of power in local people's hands that create broad rules around that then create broad performance standards that zoning should like conform to. Um, but don't come in and actually prescribe exactly what those zones should be. There's there's some balancing act here where we can give cities guidance, for example, requiring them to have strategic plans, right, and have to relook at those every few years that are really helpful without coming in and prescribing every detail. So there's some balancing act that we can come to here. But in general, we need to balance way more towards trusting local people and, and local neighborhoods and getting it down to that individual role of a citizen um, and the work that we do together to make our places great and move away from a belief, from not just not just this happening in practice, but also this belief that everything important is going to happen in D.C. And I, I think that's one of the biggest challenges we have right now is just waiting for people out in D.C. to solve all our problems for us. And I would say, look, there are important things that people in D.C. are going to decide on, but some of the most important things are going to be determined at the local level and are going to be determined at the neighborhood scale. And we need to embrace that and, not, uh, and, and have activists need to embrace that too, I think.
0: Yeah, yeah, it it's definitely a balancing act and as a nation we also need to be building more housing. And I I understand how maybe housing advocates will say, well, at the local level, uh people, you know, people are NIMBYs and they don't want housing to be built and, you know, I I I think that there is a way to change the culture around how neighborhoods evolve and um but there is a sense of urgency that housing needs to be built, so you know, again, I'd love, if there's a debate out there, that's, that would be good. Please recommend it because I'd love to see a good debate on this issue. I think we'll leave it at that. That's all the time we have for today. But before we conclude, it is time for the down zone, which is the part of this show where we can share anything that we have been listening to, reading, watching, anything that's been captivating our time these days. So John, what do you have for us today?
1: You know, this book that I've been obsessed with this month, that I hope I haven't recommended previously, but I might because it's just been like sitting with me here for a while, is The Sum of Us by Heather McGee. And what her book is about is the idea that that when we think about racism particularly, oftentimes we've gotten to these ideas of us versus them of it's a battle between black people and white people, or multiracial battle here, and it's about some people winning and some people losing. And what she really argues is, if you look at the history of this country, um, and you look at things like public pools, as an example she does of this, is how public pools got shut down when integration happened, because people didn't want um, black and white kids mixing, and how what that meant is that nobody had access to a pool anymore. Right. Everybody suffered. White kids suffered. Black kids suffered. Everyone suffered. And that there actually is a toll. And while the toll of racism may be worse and often and, and is worse, um, always right, on, on uh, Black and brown people in our country, it also has harmed white people. And that the solutions to our problems are actually going to also help everyone be better off. Now, She uh, uh, Heather McGee is uh, is a very liberal writer, and so she's suggesting very liberal solutions. But I don't think to buy into her thesis, you have to buy into all of her solutions either. I think you can actually buy into that core thesis and that core idea that we're actually very much in this together. That that coming over these conflicts and these divides of race doesn't have to be a process of opposition or a process of winners and losers, but can actually be a process where we're all stronger. And it reminded me a lot of a of an article actually um, that Chuck wrote about, about um, reparations. Um, and so this actually been picked up by mayors and used this as a model now to think about reparations. And what he talked about was like, look how redlining, right, which is where we divide towns, how actually communities, the whole city was poorer because of these racist land use decisions here. And, and the reality is by investing in these communities, by actually, uh, uh, by actually investing in, in Black communities and Black ownership and helping actually make reparations take place here, we can actually all end up wealthier in the end. The entire city will actually end up stronger. And these actual racist um, investment decisions or blocking of investment by banks um, made everybody poorer, not just black families poorer, the entire city poorer. And so I just think coming to that sense of solidarity and sort of getting out of this escape of like a, oh, I'm going to come save these people as the white savior or getting out of this approach of, um, oh, this is a battle. Who's going to win and who's not? And oh, no, this is going to harm me. I think getting out of that kind of mindset to instead an understanding of actually our interests are aligned, actually the things we need in communities can actually reinforce each other. And that uh, that things that would make our communities better for black families would also make things better for white families and Latino families and Asian families, I think is a really key insight. And I think is a, a, uh, and an understanding that I, I think what I love about it is it both acknowledges um, the realities of racism and the harms that it's had on our communities but also recognizes that the way out isn't about further dividing us, but finding a way to come together to solve these problems that are harming all of us. So I just find that really, I guess to me, it's a, that's like a very inspiring and important message there. And you can buy into the solutions she offers or not, but I would argue that the solutions to all of our problems ought to be ones that lift up all of us. And that's what we ought to be looking for. And that's what, that's what I loved about that reparations article by Chuck is what he proposed would certainly focus investment on black communities, but the impact would be a better city for everyone. So that's my anyway, that's what I'm thinking about right now, and sort of my dive deep. It's a little bit in our realm this week, uh, it's not as uh, fun or frivolous as I was last week. But that's uh, just something that I've been thinking a lot about and trying to think about how we really create uh, more unity in this country to do some really hard things and fix some really long standing uh, uh, problems in our country together.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, the sooner that we can all get out of this tribalist mentality of us versus them, winners versus losers, I I think that is really the only positive way forward in this country. And that when you were mentioning that book that I was immediately thinking about Chuck's uh, article about reparations that, you know, we, that I think he uses Kansas City as an example um in the article and it you know it's really a Kansas City issue when when you have an entire area of the city that was redlined I mean ultimately that hurts everybody and so uh you know unity is incredibly important so thanks for sharing that I actually have something more frivolous and less um, (laughs) insightful this week to share. Um, So I was gone last week and you filled in for me with Chuck. Thank you. And I went to Colorado and I did a little bit of hiking up in El Dorado Springs at El Dorado Canyon Trail. This is my first time visiting. It's just south of Boulder, but it's not Far from a place called Bear Peak, which is in Boulder, which I hiked last time I was there. So my husband does a little bit of climbing. Um, He does climbs out in El Dorado every once in a while. And so he wanted to show it to me and it was really, really pretty. And it had a really cool village that was just next to it. So it was fun to go out there. We went on Friday of last week. And then Saturday is when um, there was some heavy smoke that rolled into the entire Denver metro. So <laughs> we were actually in the city of Boulder on Saturday, and you couldn't even really see the mountains because of the forest fires, the smoke. So pretty, pretty scary, kind of a bummer, but um, hopefully it's cleared up by now. Uh, it was just nice to get out of Kansas City and go out west, go across the state of Kansas,
1: that sounds like a wonderful trip. I'm so glad you got to do that.
0: Yeah, yeah. It just took a couple of days. I realized that I, I don't think I have like traveled anywhere. I guess I've traveled to St. Louis, but that doesn't really count for me. That's only across the state of Missouri, <laughs> which isn't as far as going all the way to Denver. So, so it was nice to get out of town and and go enjoy the mountains for the first time in a very long time.
1: Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's feeling nice that the world is opening up a little bit again, that, uh, that we're able to get out, see things. Um, my, my wife and I went to a baseball game for the first time in well over a year um, earlier this week, and it was just like nice to be out and with people and to feel safe and to uh, and just be out in the world again a little bit. So I, uh, I'm recognizing that common feeling, and I, I'm excited to out get out also into like a little bit farther out of the city and actually be hiking around again like you were a little jealous.
0: well yeah you should definitely go hiking hiking is very good for you it's outside and you get an opportunity to unplug and appreciate nature which is probably one of my favorite things to do that's what got me through probably the year 2020 is just being able to enjoy and appreciate um, the nature that we do have and in this part of the country so very important
1: I was, I, I'm just, I'm just like pausing here did a nice pause there as I was just reflecting on nature and thinking it and feeling centered, which made for a great moment for me personally, but probably not great, uh, not great podcasting. But there, there you have it, uh, a moment of reflection there inside of it all. Um,
0: I thought your computer froze.
1: Oh, <laughs> I see. No, that was literally me just pausing there just thinking, just drifting off. And anyway, that's how it goes, I suppose. It, it is unusual that I wouldn't immediately have more to say.
0: Yeah, I thought it was frozen, so I was just looking at you like, oh, he must be talking right now, and I can't hear him. (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, we'll end it there. Thanks for joining me today, John. (laughs) I appreciate you coming back on as, I guess I'll call you a regular co-host for now, because I'm sure you'll be back on as um, Chuck is, I think, traveling around and doing some uh, speaking engagements. His book is about to come out. So um, that's very exciting. So I'm sure he'll be on and off for UpZoned throughout the fall season.
1: I'm excited already about coming back again um, for Chuck <laughs> as he goes on a book tour where people should pre-order. But I, I hope that I certainly am back again and going to spend time with you again. And this was a pleasure as always.
0: Excellent. Well, thanks so much and thanks everyone for listening to another episode of UpZoned. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Thanks, John.